It's Tuesday, July 1st, 2014 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Sometimes I read this this e-magazine, this online magazine. It's called Slate. Nice little shop they got over there. But seriously, Slate covers the Supreme Court like Bravo covers easily stereotyped subcultures. Oh, no, wait. I don't mean insensitively. I mean a lot. They do a lot of Supreme Court great coverage. We've got this, I don't know, it's up to like a 29-part series with Emily Bazelon and Dahlia Lithwick. And we got these judges, Walter Dellinger and Richard Posner. And they debate all the decisions and they give context and they talk to each other while disagreeing. It's fantastic. So Emily had this article called corporations had an incredible year at the Supreme Court. And I read it because, I mean, the whole series is good, not because that headline sucked me in. I mean, corporations did well at this Supreme Court. That's up there with Wahlberg turns in strained performance in Michael Bay flick. But today, the Wall Street Journal had a front page story that said, justices plot middle course on business. Wait, what? Yeah. The Supreme Court showed there are limits to the business-friendly reputation it has earned under Chief Justice John Roberts, with the term that ended Monday, marked by rulings favoring the middle ground. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to guide you through the article, try to square it with what Emily was saying, I think what the consensus view is, also, incidentally, what empirical fact has proven that corporations do quite well in front of the Roberts Court. So in this case, the journal goes through a few cases where business won, but the court sought to limit how big they won. So take Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. The vote was five for Hobby Lobby, that's a business, and four for Burwell. She's not a business. So it seems like 5-4, Hobby Lobby won. But the journal points out that the justices limited their decision. They could have made it broader. And then the journal talks about EPA cases, which the EPA lost but wasn't totally gutted. And the EPA actually won a case. That is true. And then there was a case where President Obama lost with his appointments to the Labor Relations Board. But then notes the court didn't take away every recess appointment. So there were a few business losses. There were clearly more business wins. And there were all these examples where the journal pointed out that businesses could have won even bigger. So I'm saying, let's say the Yankees beat the Red Sox 5-4. to four. And you could say, uh, you know, the Red Sox could have lost by 8, and they could have suffered an injury, and they could have blown out their bullpen. So in a way, it was a partial Red Sox victory. But in a larger, more accurate way, it was a loss. The journal, near the end, writes... The Constitutional Accountability Center, a liberal group that's been critical of the court's pro-business rulings, said corporations again fared well, even if they didn't get everything they wanted. Well, they do say that, but more impactfully, they back up saying that with actual numbers. I went right to their website, and it says that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, in cases before the Supreme Court, won 11 and lost 5. Over three years, the Chamber of Commerce's record before the Roberts Court 32 and 8. So that's an 80% winning percentage. Emily quoted those actual numbers, not just what the liberal business critics said. So when you really think about it, businesses before the court, yeah, I guess they lost some and they won some. The number 11 is some. The number 5 is also some. 11 you know, more than twice as big as the 5, but some. So it's cool. It's somewhere in the middle. Let's not quibble. You know what? The article, it just wasn't the best example of context or journalism, but it could have said that Sam Alito aggressively pushes Amway products on Eleanor Kagan. So it wasn't the most misleading article ever. I'd say it was somewhere in the middle. So on the show today, in the spiel, the U.S. soccer team faces Belgium in the World Cup. Actually, they faced Belgium, so I will provide you an emotionally appropriate response given any result. 
And before that, they're rich. They're getting ripped off. They're the Amish. We'll go under the bonnet with a special report. But first, a star of U.S. industry steps down today. What the CEO of Ford can teach others. It was the weakest of the big three automakers. Now Ford is a powerhouse. So on this, Alan Mulally's last day for, I guess, an exit interview by proxy. Here's Bryce Hoffman, author of American Icon, Alan Mulally and the Fight to Save Ford Motor Company. Since it's Alan Mulally's last day, I guess it's the last day anyone will want to talk to Bryce Hoffman. But uh, I, I thank him for joining me. Hello, Mr. Hoffman. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. It's not true, by the way. I'm sure you're interesting in so many <laughs> ways. All right. Did Mulally save Ford? Absolutely. But, you know, it's an interesting question that you raise because I asked myself the same question when I started writing this book back in 2010. And the answer is really that Ford wasn't just saved because someone rode into town on a white horse. Because what he really did, Mike, was cut through Ford's caustic corporate culture that had been holding the company back for decades and cleared the way for the good ideas that people had at Ford to actually be executed. Did you come into the book believing in the idea in general as CEO could be a knight on the white horse? Well, you know, Mike, I had covered Ford uh, for the Detroit News for five years before I, I started writing the book, so I really had a front row seat for this amazing turnaround. I'd already seen it happen. I, I remember our first sit-down interview. One of my colleagues, Daniel Howes, asked him, when are you going to start firing people? You know, when are the heads going to start rolling? This company's in such bad shape. When are you going to start bringing in people from Boeing to save it? And he just looked at us across the table and said, I don't need to fire anybody. Ford has the talent inside the company that it needs to save itself. My job is to, is to bring that talent out and let it do what I know it can do. That gets to the point that he seems a contrast to the stereotype of what we think of, or maybe some people think of, as the CEO archetype. There's this theme over and over that the actually excellent CEOs are so different from what we think of as the hard-charging, I'm going to cut the worst 10%, chainsaw Al Dunlop types. He is a coach rather than a king. That is the best way that I can describe it. And from the day that he came to Ford, you know, I remember in December of 2006 when he made his first major personnel move, which was to take a senior engineer, Derek Kuzak, and make him the company's global car czar. You know, he pulled Derek out in front of the assembled global automotive press corps and put his arm around him and said, guys, this is the guy who is going to help me save Ford Motor Company. He is going to make our cars and trucks the best in the world. But, you know, he is the proverbial iron fist in the velvet glove because behind his smiling demeanor and ever cheery presence is a relentless determination to execute the plans that he has and a real accountability. The specter here is GM and Mary Barra. And, you know, I think uh, today or yesterday, GM announced another set of recalls. I read that yep. I read that they've now recalled more cars in the last few years than they've sold. Are GM's problems so similar to what Ford's problems were that if there was a Malali clone or if Barra could channel Malali, the, the problems would be surmountable? You know, I get asked a lot, Mike, how do you compare the turnaround of General Motors to the turnaround of Ford? And my answer is always the same. What turnaround are you talking about? I mean, GM is doing better today financially than it was doing before the crisis. But that has a lot to do with the, the billions of dollars that you and me and, and the rest of the American people gave them. 
It doesn't have a lot to do with a fundamental change in culture at GM. It hasn't done what the biggest thing that, that, that Ford did, which was come to grips with its own shortcomings. The day Alan Mulally was hired, he sat next to Bill Ford on the podium and, and was asked by one of my colleagues in the press corps, what type of car do you drive? And without even pausing, he said, I drive a Lexus because it's the best car in the world. <laughs> Bill Ford grabbed the microphone out of his hand and said, and it's being keyed in the parking lot right now. Alan grabbed it back and said, it's okay. You know, we're going to make Ford's just as good. But I mean, right there, Mike, from that first press conference, he was telling the truth. Yeah. He was saying, look, I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid. We don't build the best cars in the world. But we're going to try, and we're going to do it, and they did. All right, so now the last thing I want to do is I want to go through a few myths, and I think that the example of Mulally and Ford disproves some of these. So here they are. One, okay. I think there's this idea that government needs to let private businesses fail if the market dictates that they should be failing. What's the Mulally example say about that? I think the fact that Ford saved itself is such a powerful statement about the fact that companies still can in this day and age, and you know, as, as, as Wall Street was kind of making American business a dirty word, Ford, under Alan Mulally's leadership, was fixing its problems the old-fashioned way by itself without help, and it succeeded. Well, what about this idea that the U.S. today, U.S. companies, they are just not adept at heavy manufacturing right now, 2014. It's just not what we do. The first time I met Alan Mulally, I asked him, "Why are you know you're head of Boeing's commercial aviation division? Why are you why are you leaving and coming to this troubled company in Dearborn, in Detroit?" And he said, and I'll never forget this because he said it a lot since then. He said, "I am here because I am fighting for the soul of American manufacturing, and it's a battle that he won, Mike." He really meant it, and he really did it. He showed that at least one American automaker could pick itself up, shake off the rust, compete with the best in the world, and win. Bryce Hoffman, author of American Icon, Alan Mulally, and the Fight to Save Ford Motor Company. Thank you very much, Bryce. Thank you, Mike. The Amish, they're simple, they're austere, they're rich and given to getting ripped off, maybe. In a new article in Bloomberg Businessweek magazine called Chasing the Money, Jen Banbury documents, well, let me read the subtitle, the Amish are getting rich and the investments are getting questionable. Hello, Jen. Hi. You focus on one main investment, and it might not even be an investment, it might be a scam, but it's a Florida vacation resort. Tell me about this. Florida luxury RV mobile resort. All right. Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> what do you need? How, how much money down? Well, so about five years ago, this non-Amish guy, the Amish would call him an English guy, because anyone who's not Amish, they refer to as English. You are an English man in the eyes of the Amish. I am. <laughs> wow. I feel like uh, I'm a cast member of Pinafore, but go ahead. He started going to this regular Amish horse auction and handing out jugs of orange juice and bags of citrus fruit and telling the Amish that there was this incredible investment opportunity to get in on this luxury RV park in Florida, sleepy little Bushnell about an hour north of Orlando. He got a few very well-known businessmen 
investing in it pretty early. Amish businessmen. On Amish businessmen. Men who were regarded as prosperous by other Amish Yeah, exactly. People, yes. Right. And like they must be smart in their business dealings because they had done quite well. And those men started selling their relatives, their neighbors, everybody else on it. And so it just kind of spread in this insular way among the Amish. Right. Now, it also helped that the guy running the deal Tim was Moffitt. offering, Tim Moffat, yeah. was offering a 9% return right out of the gate. And also we should say, well, what would the Amish know about Florida RV parks? Actually, quite a bit. Yeah, well, so it turns out that the number one vacation spot for the modern Amish family is this little enclave um, just outside of Sarasota in Florida, uh, Pinecraft. The Amish go down there in droves all winter long. They're allowed to be on a bus or a train, so they go by bus or train or car as long as someone else is driving them. They can go by car. And they go down, they play shuffleboard, they sit on the beach, they eat pizza. I mean, they hang out. They may do a little bit of drinking. And the Amish like to say what happens in Pinecraft stays in Pinecraft. They sort of push the Amish rules just a little bit. Well, how would they even know what Las Vegas's motto is? You know, the Amish I meet are so much more tapped into English, quote-unquote English, pop culture than yeah. I ever would think. It's not just because of their Rumspringa excursions that the adolescents do every once in a while. I mean, they have... They don't go on the internet, right? But they have smartphones. Right. Part of what happens is that the young people who have not been baptized yet, they push the boundaries a fair amount, and then maybe they are kind of like talking about this stuff to the parents and older right. people who sort of learn about it that way. It would seem that they're ripe for the picking. I mean, a, more than a few scam artists have tried successfully to prey on the Amish. You paint a pretty convincing picture that Tim Moffat should be counted among them. And then you introduce us to a kind of self-proclaimed champion of the Amish. Why don't you tell us about this guy? You're talking about Dave Krill. He's yeah. a private investigator, and he's lived in the area pretty much all of his life. He has what he calls a do-gooder gene. And when you meet him, he really seems like someone who he just wants to help. He met an Amish minister who was worried about this deal and asked Dave to informally take a look at it. And Dave jumped at the possibility. He really wanted to help out. And he started kind of sniffing around, doing a little bit of research. And he immediately saw some red flags for this deal. But when Dave Krill tries to tell some potential investors who might be getting ripped off about this, what opposition does he face? They trusted Tim Moffat first, and that's the guy they're sticking with. Instead of thanking Dave Krill for looking into this for them, they get pissed off at him. They think it's absolutely none of his business. You know, he's just this random outside English guy who's asking all these questions that might create problems for the investment. But, you know, what you're really talking about is this new trend with the subculture that never changed. That was the whole point of the Amish, that they never changed. They were consistent. And now that they're getting rich, modernity is butting up against the simple, austere life. So where do the Amish go from here? How do they, you know, interweave the fact that some of them are millionaires with the fact that they're not even supposed to use the Internet? I think a lot of Amish would say that they're kind of reaching a crisis point in terms of now having all this money and in terms of embracing technology in a way that they never did before. Or maybe embracing is the wrong word, accepting it. Mm -hmm. You know, how Amish can they still be when they all have cell phones, when they use the Internet, 
Say this RV park got built and it was like this luxury Amish RV park in Florida. Even that poses questions about what it means to be Amish. Why do you think we, English, are so interested in the Amish? I can't tell you how many people say to me, oh, I'm so sick of being on my phone all the time. I'm so sick of technology. Maybe I should become Amish, which of course is like ridiculous. You know, the main thing about being Amish, actually, all that, all the technology stuff in their mind is secondary. It's really like their devout, devout Christianity that defines them as Amish. To us, they represent simplicity. It's almost tantalizing. Maybe they have simpler lives. They have simpler values. They perhaps have a greater appreciation and are leading happier lives. And we're always told that simpler is better. And I think what your story does is a corrective to that and say, here's the here's one of the quotes from your story. You think your life, meaning you, me, English, modern people, non-Amish, you think your life is complicated and ours is simple, but it's the opposite. You just take everything as it comes. We're constantly having to figure out what to do with new things. Yeah, that's really what's going on for them right now. And it's it's complicated. It's really complicated. Chasing the money. The Amish are getting rich and the investments are getting questionable. Jen Banbury wrote the story in the new Bloomberg Business Week. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. Oh, man, this is a crazy time in shift rooting for a soccer team in time shiftiness and the World Cup. So I'm recording this before the U.S. plays Belgium in soccer, before it starts. Probably go up on the web somewhere near the end of the game. So we need to end the show with the proper mood. But what mood? All right, I'll tell you what we're going to do. If the U.S. won that game... I want you to skip ahead a minute and 20 seconds. So you don't have to hear that next part. If the U.S. wins, just skip right ahead on my mark in three, two, one. Belgium, a country that can't even decide on a government, a country that's rife with Flemish separatists. I can't believe you Belgians beat the U.S. And what terrible refereeing, by the way. But Belgium? Sure, in the U.S., conservatives and liberals argue Sure, we drive each other up a wall, and we think the other side's a bunch of loons, but they're nothing like the Walloons. And our most impassioned arguments are flecked with spittle, but are they really Flemish? Belgium is a country that does want to be united, that also doesn't want to be united, that can decide on a government, that can't decide on a government. And wouldn't you know it, the number one thing they're known for is the waffle. The waffle, the food, is a synonym for their character. It's as if the people from Bombay were always ginning up controversy, or if people from Peking were suddenly crouching so as to avoid projectiles, or to take a place whose name hasn't been changed in a fit of anti-imperialism. Dover. If people from Dover were always grooving to the music of Al Green, or homophonically, if the people of Dover passionately believed in the spirit once the body had died, or also homophonically, if the people of Dover were obsessed with the bottom part of a shoe. Well, you know what? That's what I would say if the U.S. lost to Belgium. But if the U.S. won, I think I'd say this. Belgium. What a delightful place. You know, a lot of people make comedic hay out of the fact that the two main ethnicities are Walloons and the Flemish. Other than the Kurds, those are two of the funniest sounding peoples around. It's easy to denigrate Belgium, but they have a varied culinary history. Trappist beer, 
very delicious. Palm frites go great with the beer. And as a flavorful but healthy side dish, Brussels sprouts. Maybe we forget that Brussels sprouts are from Brussels because they're one of those phrases like Vin Scully or the Frick Collection where the last consonant of the first word blends with the first consonant of the second word. So is the guy's name Vin Scully or Vin Vince Cully? Anyway, we forget that Brussels sprouts are in fact from Brussels, but they are. I honor the Belgians. Did you know that people from Antwerp are called Antwerpenars? Do they have the Antwerpenarial spirit? I don't know. But they're a delightful and proud people, and they played well. Sure, the referee wasn't perfect, but you know what? That's soccer. Am I right, Belgium? Well, here's to you. And now on to Argentina. Oh, wait, this reminds me. Maybe you're one of those people who saves up the gist and listens all in a row. And if you happen to be listening after July 5th and we've already been beaten by the Argentines, I'd like you to skip ahead 17 seconds, all right? Thank you. Three, two, one. Argentina, sure you won in soccer, but nice Navy. Some navies get sunk, other navies get overwhelmed. Your navy got repossessed. What kind of navy is that? Lucky Messi, you goal-scoring troll. And we're back in three, two, one. So we look forward to the co-favorites of this tournament, Argentina, with obvious home continent advantage and a bright star who has overcome diminutiveness. So thank you, Belgium, and we welcome you, Argentina, and we are sure that you will be a proud and worthy opponent. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzius, skip ahead a few seconds if you're a Salenzi relative, is an owner of a dog with an out-of-control flea problem. We're supposed to think that's cute. Okay, back. Andrea Salenzius, producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is, give me three seconds here, freakishly into Bluetooth. And we're back. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. You could subscribe in iTunes and give us a review. I promise I'm going to read some bad reviews. They're not really bad. They just, uh, I think, raise a few excellent points about the nature of podcast listening. You could sign up for our daily email at slate.com slash gist email we're on facebook.com slash slate gist email us directly at the gist at slate.com and thanks for you know what skip ahead four seconds if the u.s lost all right in three two one thanks for nothing jorgen klinsman back in three two one listening